This Advent and Christmas tide at Kenilworth Union, Joe and I have been preaching this sermon series called Catechetical Christmas Carols. These are carols that really share a fa fairly sophisticated catechism of Christian doctrine in a few rhymed phrases of poetry. Today, for instance, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which is Charles Wesley's paraphrase of the first chapter of John's Gospel, his unfolding of the doctrine of the Incarnation. We'll sing Hark the Herald both before and after the sermon. And that's the, Charles Wesley's way of talking about what John says here in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. And what has come into being through him is life, and the life is the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Most of us lack patience for dry abstraction. There are exceptions to that rule, CPAs, actuaries, <laughs> contract lawyers, and PhDs in philosophy, but most of us have little patience for tedium, and to be honest, theology can be tedious. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth was probably the greatest of the 20th century. He wrote his Kirche Dogmatique. It's 12 volumes, 10,000 pages, and 6 million words. Anybody read that from cover to cover? Neither have I. The church understands this, and so for centuries the church has wrapped its difficult and sometimes tedious theology in the pretty package of Christmas carols. Over the centuries, the church has managed to lodge a whole catechism of sophisticated doctrine deep in our amygdala, so that if you hear a few measures of joy to the world at church or at Target, you can't get it out of your head even if you want to for the rest of the day. Christianity colonized culture for Christ with Christmas carols. Take Hark the Herald Angels Sing, for instance. It's probably the third most beloved Christmas carol of them all, right? After Silent Night and Oh Come All Ye Faithful. It's a Wonderful Life could not be. It's a Wonderful Life without Hark the Herald. No man is poor George who has friends. Charles Wesley wrote the text in 1739, but he did not write the music. So they said that Hark the Herald Angels Sing was a poem in search of a melody for about 75 years until 1840. And an English organist named William Cummings remembered a fetching tune by the famous composer Felix Mendelssohn, who'd written this tune 10 years before in 1840 to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Gutenberg's revolutionary printing press. And he married this Mendelssohn tune to this Wesley text. Mendelssohn rolled over in his grave when he found out that Mr. Cummings had the audacity to match his little Gutenberg tune with a sacred text. Mendelssohn has descri had described his little tune as soldier-like. He envisioned it as a marching song or as a patriotic anthem, something like, oh, say, can you see, I guess. And he was wrong about that. 
because when Cummings matched this sacred text with this martial tune, it was instantly popular. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, says Wesley's poetry. Hail the incarnate deity, trumpets, Mendelssohn's martial music. So you know what the doctrine of the incarnation is, right? The doctrine of the incarnation teaches about the enfleshment of God. In the beginning was the Word, begins John in his brief little Jesus biography. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. And what's come into being with Him is life, and the life is the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, tented among us, and we have beheld His glory, glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth, the doctrine of the Incarnation. It might be the most preposterous hypothesis in the history of religious conjecture. No other religion has ever dared to say anything so outlandish that the creator of all the burning suns and spinning worlds, the fanciful dramatist who concocted this prodigious prodigal panoply of protons, protozoa, plankton, peonies, ponderosa pines, puppies, platypi, porpoises, and Presbyterians <laughs> comes crawling into time at Bethlehem to a crude stable with the soft, half-finished features of a human face and a still translucent skull and nothing to his name but the rags on his body and the milk in his mother's breast. It's an eccentric hypothesis. And Wesley brings this lofty abstraction down to earth and implants it forever in our amygdala, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And so every Christmas, we Christians, not to mention secular humanists and atheists too, repeat the doctrine of the incarnation over and over and over again without thinking about what we're saying at Christmas time because of Wesley's little poem. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. I don't think you can even calculate the vast evangelical significance of Wesley's text. Just from a pure marketing standpoint, it's genius. Just from a branding standpoint, it's so intelligent. God had a name. God had a name, and it was Jesus. God had a face, and it was His. To be real to each other, we need to stand face to face with each other. This is even true of God. See the distant, distant, vaporous Godhead veiled behind his swarthy, Semitic carpenter face. Hail the incarnate deity. That Bethlehem baby, Mary's little boy child, was God of God, light of light, very God of very God, as the old creed puts it. So what, right? Who cares? What's the point? Glad you asked. Here's something to take home with you. For the truth to be true, it has to be enfleshed. Otherwise, it's just gaseous, intangible abstraction. 
This is true even of ultimate. This is even true of God's own truth. Therefore, this Advent, this Christmas tide, let's play God to each other. Let's show up. Be there face to face in the flesh. Have you noticed the diminishing fleshiness of our world as we prepare to enter the second quintile of the 21st century? An ATM machine instead of a bank teller, Amazon instead of the bookstall, Netflix instead of your local movie house where you sit next to your neighbors in chairs and eat popcorn. A couple of weeks ago, I pointed out that our children who are born in this century, born around 2000 or after, are way safer than children born in the last century. They drink less alcohol, they have fewer auto accidents, they have less sex, they have fewer teen pregnancies, and all this because they never leave the house. (laughs) They connect with their friends through screens, virtually. It's not a criticism, just an observation. One year, around Christmas time, a few days before Christmas, we had a snowstorm that was so serious that we closed down the church office. So I went to Macy's to go Christmas shopping. There was no one else in the store. The people did not want to brave the icy road, so it was, it was just me and five or six Macy's clerks in the store. But they pretended I wasn't there. They were all absorbed in their Facebook pages. I was an easy target. I was vulnerable. I didn't know what I wanted to buy. I was there to pick up some cheap trinket for my friend. All they had to do was persuade me to buy anything they wanted me to buy, and I would have done it. I'd have given them $100, $200, but nobody cared that I was there. And we wonder why retail is in trouble. So, if you will just show up, in the flesh, and be present with another human being, you will be a hero to those you love. If you will turn the television off during your family dinner, if you will silence your cell phone when you're having coffee at Starbucks with your friend, if you will refuse to be distracted by your troubles at work when your daughter tells you about the 18-foot three-pointer she nailed at the buzzer in the basketball game that, that, that afternoon, if you will massage the stress that has lodged in your wife's shoulders at the end of a long day, you will be a hero in the known world. A while back, I was planning a wedding with two of my favorite people. They were young and smart and beautiful. He was a medical student, and she was an emergency room nurse. And I've told you before that I like to meet with my wedding couples for about five hours, an hour at a time, to plan the ceremony. It takes us about two hours to plan the ceremony. And then for the other three hours, we want to talk about the marriage. Because I always tell them to talk them into this. I always tell them that when I celebrate a wedding, I am representing two very powerful authorities. The state of Illinois and God. And so it makes sense for somebody who loves them both, somebody neutral who loves them both, to ask important questions that we ought to ask of ourselves and of each other before we say, until death do us part. And sometimes I ask them, why him? Why her? Besides the fact that he's dangerously handsome, why did he become your life's love 
instead of all the other thousands of Jake Gyllenhaals you could have had. <laughs> Why her? Why did you choose her? What are the little things that made you fall in love with her or him? And this young woman said to me, on our first date, we went to a bar. We met at a bar for a drink. It was one of these sports bars with 42 televisions in it. The Warriors game was on. He's a huge Steph Curry fan. We sat in a booth. His seat was facing the television, and mine was facing away. And we sat there for about five minutes, and he said, Can we change seats? I want to get to know you. I turned to this 29-year-old kid and I said, you're my hero. <laughs> it's just a little example of enfleshment, of showing up and paying attention face-to-face -face without the television. By the way, when our meeting was over, the couple left my office and he let her walk a couple of steps ahead and he turned around and stood in my doorway and he whispers to me, Reverend, you don't need to tell Brenda this, but in the interest of full disclosure, when we switched seats, the game was over. <laughs> but I'm interested in happy marriages, so I never told her. Truth isn't true unless it's enfleshed. Even God's own truth. Abstractions are vaporous and elusive. Every time we show up, every time we are present in the room, in the flesh, and look another human being straight in the eye, the Word becomes flesh. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity.